it really hurts me to see my colleagues suffering. I don't like it. I think it's not necessary. I think the systems we find ourselves in, in which we're being burnt out or the moral injury, whatever you want to call it, we're being taken advantage of. They're not, we're not really, you know, we're taking it, we're taken for granted. So what do you get when you have two heavyweight doctors in the ring who both have a wealth of knowledge and experience advising and supporting doctors on alternative careers. You get a highly intelligent, informational, educational, wild podcast episode. So this is one episode you definitely do not want to miss. So I'm introducing to you a Dr. John Jurica. He is the co-founder and career strategist at Newscript and is the host of Physician Non-Clinical Careers podcast, a highly popular podcast, predominantly based in the US, but with a global listenership, uh, serving a community of online physicians who are looking for diverse and alternative careers. So John is really interesting because he started his journey pivoting from clinical to non-clinical work at least twice in his career before he started on this journey purposefully supporting doctors in their career change. So in this episode, we are going to be focusing on the differences between doctors exploring diverse and alternative careers in the US and the UK, uh, why he set up non-clinical careers for physicians and new script, what seems to be the main driving factors for diversifying in the US uh, compared to the UK. We also talk about the problems in healthcare leadership and how this affects doctors. And also looking forward at the future, what are are our responsibilities as doctors to protect ourselves from the changes that are happening now that will affect our jobs in the future. So this is one of those podcast conversations that I literally could have continued for days. It's a really hot topic. Don't miss it. But before you listen, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast because you don't want to miss any more of these. Let's go. Let's face it, burnout amongst doctors is sky high and we're actively seeking other ways to make the most of our transferable skills beyond the usual career pathways. Welcome to Disrupting Doctors' Careers. I'm your host, Dr. Abena Bubbs-Jones, and I'm on a mission to connect one million doctors across the world with the best in diverse career opportunities. So welcome so much to Disrupting Doctors Careers, John. It is such a pleasure to have you featuring on this podcast because it wasn't too long ago that I was featuring on your podcast. Exactly. And I, I love that kind of, you know, synchronicity and all of that jazz. Um, but also it's a really um, important opportunity to compare notes on what we're doing on both sides of the greater pond and yes. also discuss some of the really important wider issues around why are doctors changing careers? 
But like everything, I really want to focus on your story. Um, so obviously you are the founder of non-clinical careers for physicians. You are a thought leader, you're an influencer, you run this amazing business and it's just growing. You've got new script as well. We can talk about that. But the big question is, why did you set this up in the first place? Because as we know, like these things take a lot of work, a lot of dedication, commitment. You've run your podcast for years now. So why was this important to you? Tell us a little bit more about your story. Okay. Well, I was a family physician for many years. I Early in my career, I got in, interested in doing other things. I, I don't know why. I guess I was just kind of bored doing straight family medicine. After a while, it gets a little tedious. So I became a physician advisor, part-time, medical director, part-time. So I was exposed to these things where I could earn a little extra money, carve out time for my practice. And then I really got interested in to the point where I became the chief medical officer for a hospital for 14 years. And uh, in that position, you pretty much can't practice that much. I was part-time for a while practicing. And then I stopped seeing patients completely for four years. And then I ended up going back and became an owner of an urgent care center and had to reestablish my practice. And uh, I served as a medical director there too. So I actually went into clinical, out of clinical, back into clinical, and now out again, two full cycles. And in the process, I became really interested in this whole concept because I saw other physicians who were coming to me and say, well, how'd you do that? And can I do that? Because I'm burned out and I'm frustrated and I just want to get out of medicine. And, and I was thinking, well, I know what I did. doesn't mean I knew a lot about other things that physicians did. So I thought, well, the easiest way to learn about it is do a podcast and interview people so I could, so I could learn from them. And so I, it wasn't that hard at first. It's one of but, the biggest secrets that you've just let out about podcasts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Then all of a sudden we're experts, you know, two or three years later. It's way better than reading books. That's all I can say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so that's what happened. And I'm really just kind of dedicated now to find different ways to help physicians. And really it's extended to some non-physicians as well, because I started another side thing uh, that helps uh, lots of clinicians, but we can talk about that in a minute, but th that's what drove me to do it. I'm constantly trying to learn. I mean, I'm not necessarily the world's best physician coach, you know, I'm more of a consultant and a mentor and that kind of thing. And I try and do it mostly through my podcast, but I have some courses and I also do some mentoring one-on-one. -on -one. So that's what got me here. Thank you so much for that. Actually, really concise summary. <laughs> Good. Um, you can tell you're a professional at this. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, thank you so much for that. And my, my question is, what has kept you going? So there's the having the idea, realizing that, you know, doctors are interested in you and, you know, the, the, the possibilities of going into non-clinical. But then what has kept you going for these years? Like, why is this an important project? Is this, is this an important service? What changes yeah. have you seen since you first started this? It does keep me going. Well, the thing is, it's become a business. And, uh, you know, part of the, what keeps it going is like, okay, I got to figure out how to, to pay for it at some point. When I did it really the first few years, it was completely a hobby. Absolutely. Uh, I just devoted my time, some money, effort, resources, and whatever to do it. And really, that's what mainly drives me is because I just see it really bothers me. Well, here's the thing, and I haven't said this on live in a long time, but the thing is, it really hurts me to see my colleagues suffering. I don't like it. I think it's not 
necessary. I think the systems we find ourselves in, in which we're being burnt out or the moral injury, whatever you want to call it, we're being taken advantage of. They're not, we're not really, you know, we're taking it, we're taken for granted. And there's no reason why you and me and all our colleagues should suffer after spending 10 to 20,000 hours learning what we do. I mean, you can't just get a book and become a physician. I mean, it's a long time, a lot of delayed gratification. So that's really the main thing that drives me. And I want to let physicians know that they have options. And some of the options are awesome. I mean, really excellent, fun things that can reinvigorate them, re uh, inspire them to do some really great things. So that's the main thing that keeps me going. Thank you so much, John. I think a lot of what you said there really echoes in my heart as to why for years I'm still doing medic footprints and I'm, you know, even more passionate about it than when I first started. And I really would love to pick up something that you mentioned about doctors suffering in the, the standard healthcare institutions. And again, it kind of goes to another question I have is you know, why, why are doctors suffering? Why are we essentially the victims of the institution? We are supposed to be decision makers, leaders, top of our games. I mean, you were in hospital management for many years. So mm-hmm. why is this still an ongoing problem, which is in fact seems to be getting worse in many cases? Yeah, well... For one thing, apparently we've been unable to achieve any kind of power, any kind of leverage in uh-huh. the situation we find ourselves in. I mean, if you're in Canada or the UK or a lot, probably most of different countries, you know, you're pretty much part of a national health system of some sort. So it is what it is. It's governmental. It's it's a huge bureaucracy in the US. It's we have our version of it. And it's just big, big, massive corporations that really don't recognize physicians for the most part, as professionals. I mean, that's the thing that we're trained and we're going through it. We feel we are professionals. We should be able to think independently. We do the best for our patients one by one, face to face, not have a lot of interference. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, in all these systems, there's external interference. There's new rules or regs. They're constantly being foisted on us, at least in the U.S. Uh, On top of that, in the U.S., you have, number one, the huge debt that many physicians go into in order to establish their career. And in some ways that, that, that has to have an effect in how they choose to practice. And and, in the U S for example, we don't have as many primary care doctors as we probably would if we didn't have two or $300,000 in debt to worry about. And it also is manifest in this country a little more by being sued. I mean, most physicians get sued during their career. I mean, definitely at least half is 100% guaranteed to be sued. And of course, there are many physicians in this country who've been sued multiple times. I've been sued four times. I almost made it out without ever being found guilty, but I had to pay $75,000. Yeah, much to me, that's, that's considered like, chump change because you know most lawsuits are they shoot for one or two million dollars oh, most hospital based doctors have three million in insurance and so the insurance uh, is usually the the plaintiff usually tries to go for the three million so those things are in addition to the bureaucracy and everything else so i i don't know if i answered your question but we don't have the power and so to me, I think we need physicians to take care of patients. Obviously, I need my physician, <laughs> but 
since all that's true, then there are alternatives and there's no sense beating yourself up. You should take advantage of the alternatives that are out there that are very rewarding. So that's that's why I keep going. I mean, I think you've made some really interesting points there. And actually, yeah, being sued is, is a bigger thing in some countries more than others. But I can see particularly in the U.S. how substantial that is. Not to say it's not a problem in the U.K., but yes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we can compare. Um, but go, but go, but going back to say leadership in these institutions, um, and I said you were a medical leader in an institution for fourteen years at least. How can we as doctors influence change at a leadership level so that that filters down to not only the experience of doctors but also healthcare professionals? It's funny because a million dollar uh, question, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is another question, love, but it's something that I thoughts. thought a lot about when I was mm. the chief medical officer. Because some of the things that I did as the CMO is, and I could actually impact my physicians. My, I, we had it was not a huge hospital. We had about four hundred on staff, and a lot of those are part time. But really, because I was there and I was the first chief medical officer at that hospital, I could influence the CEO and the CFO and the other senior management team to try to understand how physicians think and how to deal with them and communicate with them in a way, again, as a professional and one who's probably three times smarter than you are, uh, Mr. CEO, although I won't say that directly. And you know, try to make sure that they included the, those kinds of thoughts when they were putting in policies and, you know, they were hiring. Initially, when I started working, I, we were all independent physicians on a medical staff. But over the last 20 years, that has kind of flipped to where most physicians are actually hired and employed by the the system you're working at. And so it's similar in a, in a way to be employed by you know the National Health Service, because now you work for this giant bureaucracy. It doesn't really know you very well and doesn't really understand your training, really. I mean, they just don't. They know it takes a long time, but they don't really understand the intensity of work that has to be done to get to the point where you can make those life and death decisions on a daily basis, multiple times a day, maybe multiple times an hour. They have no idea. You know, they have an MBA from some you know college. It's like they have no clue. So working within that, I, it, I did find there were times where I could really enhance and improve it. And the best run organizations in the country, the Cleveland clinics and Mayo clinics, and I don't know, maybe I mentioned those already, but they're run by physicians. There's a lot of physician engagement and there's a lot of physician input into how things are done. And those places are a lot better to work for and they're mm. actually high quality. They're better quality as mm. well because of all that input. So that has been demonstrated. Argument. So there's yeah. a real business argument for organizations to actually look after their staff, look after their doctors, because they are the, the probably the most expensive thing on their, you know, in their expenses. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's really top, Absolutely. top of the list. So I, I guess, you know, going back to the question, why are many companies still struggling to really get to that level? Yeah. And, and actually it goes around because I, I always have this theory. Actually, I'm an occupational medicine physician, so I'm always about fitting the job with the person and vice versa, right? And health mm -hmm. and legislation all around that. And my theory is that they are just choosing the wrong people to become doctors. And because they're, they're looking, they're looking for people who, yeah, can think independently, are leaders, you know, and academics and all of that jazz, prove that they're brilliant at everything. But actually, when you need these people in the system to be following certain guidelines policies that are determined many of the time 
by non-clinicians or you know people with MBAs business driven people uh, that's I think that's where the mismatch is because you've got some really bright thinkers who think outside of the box who have leadership skills who are, can actually challenge but they are not being listened to they do not have the autonomy and and that's you know work related, standard work related stress right yeah um and and so that's where I think the problem is it's the kind of people they're expecting to go into these roles in the first place and so should we be looking for different kind of people to become doctors where they would perhaps thrive better and, and serve better in this this kind of role where they're just they're essentially service delivery with a bit of thinking on the side well yes although we did also talk about this this i think when you're on my podcast that um you know we're so young when we make these decisions that mm. we're basically we're, mm-hmm. we're children making a decision about the next 20 years of our lives and somehow there has to be a little more flexibility built in. So, you know, maybe if you do happen to choose that more rigid, you know, focused, uh, you know, physician, well, maybe there's something that they can do. They can shift gears later. And I don't mean non-clinical, but just something that accommodates that maturity that comes later Mm -hmm. and use the people. There's no point in wasting all those resources and training and then not kind of being a little more flexible to try and use their their best skills and their, mm-hmm. their zone of genius or whatever you want to call it. Do you, do you feel that they're, um, you know, I mean, obviously you're kind of essentially in some ways in the center of doctors quitting their standard conventional jobs and going off on other pathways. Is that a problem for the healthcare system in the US at the moment? Yes and no. <laughs> In the system in the U.S., some of these jobs didn't exist until the system forced those jobs to exist. In other words, utilization management, benefits management. Okay, when you didn't have to do that, you didn't need physician advisors to do that. But now you need physician advisors to do that. Clinical in our country, you have to use ICD-10 or 11, you Mm -hmm. know, for billing purposes, not just to classify a disease, you know, but to actually bill. So then you need experts in ICD-10 and 11. So mm-hmm. then that whole industry has sprung up and you actually need physicians to translate for other physicians. So I think there's there's an increasing demand for these kinds of things, you know, like that you're teaching and, and, and others are teaching around the world for slightly different reasons, perhaps. But I think that is going to continue to grow. When I started, probably when you did five, six years ago or eight, in your case, I think it was, I mean, there was like nobody doing this. And now it's like there's coaches and there's consultants and there's all kinds of people teaching this. But I think we're still on the up uh, of that curve, the upward slope of that curve. And that's I don't know if that's good or bad, but I think it still is because people are finding out there are a lot of things you can do that use your medical background positively and help patients and make money uh, and get and be satisfied. I mean, we're going to go on to some of those uh, pathways shortly. Um, but just go again, going back to the, the main issue that affects healthcare systems as a whole. I think one of the things that I've seen in the UK in particular is that recognizing there's a problem that is very, very difficult to fix, I have to say, is a really challenging problem, especially for the NHS, which is huge, it's old, it's got lots of bits stuck onto it. Um, doing some amazing, amazing, valuable stuff, like don't get me wrong, but with regards to the culture, there's still a lot of work to be done. And specifically with doctors, what we see is we've got doctors retiring early, doctors stopping work due to stress and you name it, you know, then you've got the women, especially in their early 30s, who because mm. of childcare and childcare costs kind of disappear oh, yeah. off 
off the rotors for a while and you know sometimes never come back because they realize that sometimes life is a bit better but you know having children is not as stressful as working in, <laughs> it's hard in to a believe hospital. that's true but... and um you know one one of the ways the government seems to be addressing it at the moment is perhaps not to really tackle those issues head on you've got a few initiatives here and there but many to open up more medical schools <laughs> 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 And putting more people into the system to go through what some people describe as trauma, like occupational yeah. trauma. And so I don't know if that's being replicated in the US or elsewhere, but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't know if it's replicated directly in that way, because the, the, the number of med schools and the number of slots is tightly regulated um, for years. They were trying to expand, but it really seems to have plateaued again. Uh, there's a massive shortage, which is why a lot there are lots and lots of foreign medical grads in the, in the U.S. because we continue mm-hmm. to soak up <laughs> that that number. Uh, which, you know, is good, good for them, for sure. And good for the country here to have more doctors, but um, not really going into the planning at the front end of how to change the curriculums for our medical schools and maybe how to expand our medical schools, maybe do things a little differently. And that would go also for the residencies as well. So um, I think that there has not really been that I've seen any major change to the system in terms of how we're choosing and educating physicians yet. Uh, But I think something will have to change ultimately. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll go first. <laughs> we'll get there first. I don't know. Um, I think if you have a smaller country that has a concerted group of politicians and, and stakeholders that can work together, that might work quicker than the amorphous system that we have in the U.S. What can happen in the U.S. is you can have little pockets of things that work, and then it takes a long time to get those those new ways of doing things to be adopted across a massive bureaucracy, some of which is private and some of which is public. So uh, even though the U S maybe is seen as innovative in some ways, I, you know, Mm. we just don't see that much change right now. So, I mean, it's really interesting because over the years I've worked with so many doctors who ask, who see the U S as the the Holy land. We all want to go work in the U S and get our USMLEs done as early as possible. Cause no one really understands uh, any of the stuff you have to learn, which is like physiology and all the stuff you forget anyway, but you have to do them for the exams to get into the country for some reason. Um, yeah. So what, what advice would you give to doctors who are considering moving to the U S and working in the system? Like what kind of things should they think about? They might not have considered um, in their, in their career move geographical career move, I should say. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if I, if I know the, the ins and outs of having to make that transition well enough. I mean, th- to the extent you can try and get some kind of, uh, you know, ideally if you could, this is like when you're looking at any job is if you can do a pilot or if you can shadow somebody, well, mm-hmm. if you can do something akin to that before making this commitment to, uh, you know, spend the time here for a while, however you can do that with a relative or just move here for a while on a, a regular visa, what have you, and, you know, try to get some exposure to the system and then find out exactly what the steps are for uh, applying and, um, you know, what hoops you have to jump through. But uh, I don't know. To me, I, I know I talked to a lot of physicians who have come here and who have been unable to get a residency or they have been unable to maintain their, their license. 
And a lot of them are looking to go into non-clinical and some of them are very successful at that and mm-hmm. do very well. And so that's another sort of pool of people that, that make, that it makes sense for them to do that. And they, again, they have that medical background, say they did med school, you know, in, in a, their country. And so they can bring those skills to bear. And some of those are very successful in the non-clinical after being frustrated by trying to get into the clinical. I'm not saying give up on the clinical, but uh, it's it's another option that maybe you didn't know about. I think I think those are really important points for doctors to consider, especially if they're not successful in getting the residency and the specialty that they want. It's just to be aware that there are other options actually and going back to my specialty occupational medicine I have quite a few friends and colleagues who do work in the U.S. at least part of the time but haven't had to do the exams because they're working in a non-clinical capacity as a leader in the company so they're not seeing patients so they don't need that registration to do their job basically and that's another way I guess of getting around having to do those exams and getting on a residency especially if you're someone that has a lot of experience and a value add um, to the, the healthcare services in the system. Um, but that also segues into, like we've talked about some of the main driving factors when it comes to diversifying careers in the US. And we talked about, you know, work-created stress, burnout. Um, what what other factors have you come across? And, and where do doctors tend to naturally go first? Well, there's another reason to diversify and it's more of a generic reason, but this mm-hmm. comes up and that is that there are things that can take, make it una- you unable to practice. And if all your eggs are in that basket and you become disabled or you have to stay home because your spouse has an illness or there's a lot of reasons. And then you go, Oh my gosh, all I can do is practice 80 hours a week in general surgery. And I have no other source of income. I have nothing else I can do part-time. So it just makes sense to get involved in other things. And as almost as an just in case, and if you can learn about some of the, these non-clinical careers or side hobbies, even little, you know, I know so many physicians who basically practice full time, but they do have these side gigs, these side hustles that help diversify. They're learning other things. And so that's just another thing to keep in mind that it's probably good for all of us to not, you know, focus only on one vocation when, there, you know, we could have more than one Um so I did want to mention that. Oh, by the way, I hate to digress for one minute, but I discovered a specialty that I did not appreciate in the past. And it kind of relates to occupational medicine that I have not been advising in the past people to do that. I'm now really have a good appreciation for uh, appreciation mm-hmm. for, and that is uh, public health. Oh, wow. That's really common here. Public health. Yeah. I mean, public <laughs> health in this country is a two year residency. Uh-huh. You get a master's in public health yeah. while you're doing it. And you can do either clinical or non-clinical work when you're done, as you probably yeah. know. Yeah. And I've just interviewed some interesting guests and I just have this appreciation for, uh, for public health and uh, as something that really is in front of mind, but might be another way to get into the system here. So I'm, oh, I'm sorry I see is like an avenue. Cause I know that a lot of uh, the MPH masters of public health, 
um, seems to be very popular amongst doctors that they'll go and do like a long distance at Yale or Stanford or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, one of those. Yeah. And then they've got the MPH and it's like, hey, I've got the MPH. But you're right. I mean, public health, I think, has always been around and always been fairly well known, but actually came to the forefront in the pandemic. <laughs> right. We had a lot of these PH public health leaders you know, um, kind of on, in the press every day, all the time being harassed. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a really good point and something to for doctors to think about when they are moving over to the US. Um, in in the UK, we when when I when doc, when people ask me, so what do doctors tend to do when they diversify or they leave medicine? The common the common things that they tend to do. Actually, hasn't changed that much over the year, but there are the years, but there are other emerging areas to go into. And this is beyond the medical practice I'm talking about. Um, includes management consulting. Yep. Pharma. Okay, I guess it, you yep. could see it as medical. You could see it as non-medical. Um, and um, health tech startups. So not mm. working as a clinician, but mm. working as a leader founder kind of an advisor advisor you name yeah. it so um and then there's other things like lifestyle medicine is really popular now coaching yeah. as you mentioned as well like life coaching career coaching um and i know a lot of doctors that are like i'm just going to be an actor <laughs> or go into something arty which is <clears throat> amazing and wonderful um but these are the com- these are the common things that tend to come up again and again so i'd love to hear more from you about what tends to be quite popular for doctors when they are making that move in the U.S. Yeah, the, the lot of, similar to what you've discussed. Although for us, uh, a lot of hospital jobs, medical director jobs, associate medical directors, CMO, chief medical information officer, chief quality officer, chief patient safety officer. There's a lot of high-level leadership positions in the larger institutions that are a simple segue for hospitalists and ER doctors and anesthesiologists that are in the hospital every day anyway. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's something more so here than in, you know, uh, the UK or elsewhere. Um, Medical writing is a big one here. Probably not the highest paid, but there are at least five or six different ways you can make a living as a medical writer and then become a, an editor, or they sometimes are called medical directors. Essentially they're an editor for a big publishing company or Mm -hmm. a lot of education, you know, patient education and, you know, physician or professional education. And then a lot of the one-offs, like you said, we have these entities that exist. For example, there's something called, um, uh, it's basically a CMS. It's a Medicare contractor. It's an independent, but it hires chief medical officers. Then you have the whole industry insurance industry in this country that hires thousands of doctors as either benefits managers or um, physician advisors, or actually chief medical officers and insurance, both health and life insurance hires physicians Mm -hmm. as medical directors and CMOs. And Mm -hmm. so if you keep looking, you'll find, you know, these unique situations that uh, it's hard to categorize all of them, but I do like the consulting that you brought up because in here you can be your own consultant. Like, I mean, you're a consultant for your own business, but, or you can work for those, like you said, McKinsey or Huron or BCG or whatever. There's at least 20 major consulting firms that hire physicians on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And I know that the consultant firms in particular, they love doctors they love doctors and why because of all the inherent skills 
that yeah. aren't really being valued elsewhere <laughs> for you know, some reason like doctors tend to outperform other people other other industry uh hires in consulting doctors tend to think at- analytically they work very well in teams yes. they can work independently they've got so there's so many different really inherent skill sets that aren't being kind of recognized or and valued they- in their standard day-to-day roles why mm-hmm. why <laughs> <laughs> and they tend to be excellent employees. They show great up, employees. They're accountable. It's funny because, no. like you know, sometimes there's this kind of reputation that doctors tend to have. Oh, doctors are really That's difficult right. to manage. They they have all well, these demands <laughs> and all this jazz. And I'm like, really? Am I? Well, I've never had anyone say it to my face, but I doubt they would. Uh, but I'd like well, to think that I am not a difficult person to manage. Um, but I think I think it's probably more that doctors get to a point where they they're just really frustrated, especially when they don't feel like they're, they're being heard. And right. that comes out in different ways. Right. So, um, yeah, you can be felt, you can be, looks like you're disruptive, you know, because yeah, you're arguing, exactly. But that's, exactly. that's because of the passion and the fact that they, they know, we do know certain things we'd like to share with you. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, I was very, I'm really interested about, diversifying careers in the US because one of the things I've always recognized in general for US anyone in the US anyone who is in the US is that you really in order to get paid you need to, you need to know how to sell yourself <laughs> like you know like in the UK as a doctor we don't talk about in, in the public health system we do not talk about money ever like there is no value we, we don't really understand the value of any, any service that we're providing that that just isn't in our vocabulary or our DNA. Whereas in the U S a lot of doctors, they are working in the private sector and it's all about money. Right. And so with those inherent entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial skill sets, I would think that these kind of doctors are quite well positioned to go off and run their own hospitals or set their own businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So and then I was thinking those pathways would be quite easy to pursue. So, uh, so A, am I correct in thinking that? And B, if not, are there any particular blockers that doctors tend to face? Like without, you know, they don't really recognize the skills that they can use or they already have to kind of really just branch out on their own. I see a lot of entrepreneurs, although I do think what you just said is true, is that physicians, it's not the first place they typically go when they're thinking about doing something because most of us are more traditionalist and we're kind of like, well, what can I do that's just one or two steps away from what I'm already doing? Mm-hmm. Having said that, a lot of physicians have these you know, great ideas for fixing things. And so, I mean, I've interviewed dozens and dozens of entrepreneurs and people have gone off on all kinds of tangents. I think there's a learning curve. You know, they have to really spend a little bit of time. You don't have to get an MBA or anything like that, but you certainly have to think about, okay, understanding finances, understanding marketing. Yes, you are going to have to sell if you're going to be an entrepreneur. There's no way around that. And so many of us are introverts that that could be a little tough to learn at first, but they do it. And, you know, some of the super successful physicians in different fields even those that are that are doing like major startups with you know private equity and all that i've seen it's it's pretty remarkable yeah but no I, I, most I, bootstrap themselves though <laughs> i think that's just representative of what happens generally in the in the market like most people will bootstrap the very few will go on to get equity funding and right. funding but um yeah and no, i think it's a, it's a really interesting 
topic to explore. My, my next question for you is a question that I get asked a lot. And noticing in your name, you are John Jurica, MD, MPH, CPE. Are there any other letters that goes after that? And that, that leads into a question of, you know, when doctors are looking to do other things, should they be getting more qualifications to do that? Yes. Uh, uh, I have another designation, FAAPL, which is just fellow of the American Association for Physician Leadership, which is just one of those membership things, you know, but uh-huh. I don't usually call those. Uh, anyway, I, I don't, I think there's a place definitely for getting certifications, you know, where the really important place to me that I see that really helps quickly in physicians who are looking to diversify into something else is getting a certification in something that's usually super easy, Mm. you know, because we've, we've studied for so many years to, for us to do a three month, a six month course and take a certification exam is like piece of cake. And you can do that in UM, you can do that in, in quality, you can do all these things. And you get a little certification, it's just enough to show the employer that you're committed. And it's also enough to give you a little information, a little knowledge that you didn't have that you now put you above 99% of the physicians, you might be competing for that job. So some of those certifications, I think are a no brainer. If you know, if you want to go into clinical documentation improvement, getting a certification that if you want to go into quality, if you want to go into one of these other areas, uh, an MBA, I, I always, you know, I do podcasts and <laughs> courses on whether or not just to get an MP, MBA or the similar type thing. And the way I look at that is you shouldn't do that unless you actually have a set goal as to how it's going to help you achieve something rather than. I have people that maybe you have the same question. Should I get an MBA so it can help me figure out what I want to do? Well, no, that's <laughs> Very expensive really way of doing that. Exactly. I would just say, go and get a coach, spend the money on a coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. A coach would be a lot better for that money. Way better ROI. MBA. Oh man. So, but you know, on the other hand, I, my sponsor is an MBA program. So when you get to the point where, you know, you know, you want to, you're getting a job as a CMO or you need to advance, you're halfway there, then you might want to get that or complete that, um, but not routinely. I say, if, you, if you're going to do an MBA, get your company to pay for it. <laughs> because exactly. it's a lot of money. It is so much no, money. You and, you know, I, I, I think, and the way that it, the, the pricing for MBAs, it's for companies to pay for it. Do you yes. know what I mean? It's, it's, it's very rarely you know, designed for people to actually self-fund it. Um, and yeah, I think, I think another thing is like with MBA, I think it's important to go in with your eyes wide open. And actually the most of the value from doing an MBA is the networking. It's about who you're yeah. going to meet on the course That's right. That's and really right. leveraging that. Um, but if you're like, I want to do an MBA to go into business, it's just not a strong enough reason to do it. That That's just my personal opinion. And going Going back to qualifications, uh, me being, I, I basically say that all, all doctors are qualification junkies. Like, you know, we started off just getting a few letters and then, you know, like how many degrees we had, we haven't even graduated yet. And then we do graduate yeah. and then it just keeps going, right? And then, of course, we're going to think, oh, what other qualifications can I do? And there has to be a point where it just has to stop. It is an addiction. Yeah. It is totally an addiction. But similar to what you, you were saying, I think it's really important that if you decide to do a qualification, it really has to point mandatorily, if that's a word, towards the career that you're going for. Like, for example, again, going back to my occupational medicine career, I love it. 
everyone do it please um i always advise everyone even if they're unsure to do the diploma in occupational medicine because it opens so many doors and it's the best right. return on investment on any qualification you'll do because yeah as you said like just having that will get you employed get you into a company do you know what i mean if that's something that you want to do you might decide you don't want to do it but it's not that expensive in the great scheme of things because you will make your money back <laughs> yeah, it's a distinguishing you know I mean? factor. It's a factor that other people don't have. You have, and it's not, you're not spending three years of your life doing that. Yeah, it's know? like a couple of months, two, three months at the most. It's totally worth it. Um, but I, but then I say, you know, with other people who are like, oh, I can't do this without a qualification, or I can't apply for this job without this qualification. Not necessarily the case. And I agree, you know, having a qualification will help you raise your head above the parapet, especially in competitive roles. But that isn't going to be the deciding factor if you have other, uh, what's it called, armory to your belt, so to speak. And it's those unique things that come out, like your experience, what you've gone on out and done, the projects that you may have worked on, you know, those things that no one can really compete with that is actually right. relevant to whatever company or situation you're applying for. I'd say that counts the experiential uh, qualities of what you've done in many cases does count more than a qualification unless you're going into you know medicine and you want to be a doctor then you clearly have to get a degree <laughs> you just have you know, to... it's regulated <laughs> there's no way yes. out of that <laughs> yeah I agree a hundred percent and and if you could look ahead and you know for a fact that you want to be, you know, in a position to lead some kind of senior management team and it says on the job application uh, or the job description, uh, you know, MBA uh, either required or, uh, you know, uh, nice to have, however they phrase that. Um, if you don't have that, then you're just shooting in the dark and really guessing. Yeah, potentially, but I, I could go on with this debate for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It yeah. depends on the employer, but I, I, I can't think oh, yeah. of any jobs where it's like you need to have an MBA to do this job because you could argue like a lot of, and a lot of employers recognize that MBA is not the bill and end all. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't. Well, it doesn't that's true. And in fact, experience. the so-called job description, they usually uh, oh, yeah. you know, ignore <laughs> at least half of those items because they put in there everything they'd love to have and yeah. they don't ever get that. Yeah, so, not yeah. helpful. Well, well moving, moving to looking forward, crystal ball into the future, let's say in the next five, 10 years at least, what changes do you think you'll see in relation to how doctors' careers will change in the U.S.? So not just, you know, the traditional ways that doctors work, but also will that link to doctors diversifying a bit more readily, a bit more freely with more autonomy? What do you think? Well, I think so in some ways, only because I know that I have medical students reaching out to me now. I have residents reaching out to me now. There's Facebook groups. There's there's other types of groups. There's lots of engagement on LinkedIn and elsewhere by medical students and and residents who I cannot believe how intentional they are compared to what, what took me 35 years to figure out or, or so. So I do see that there's going to be much greater understanding and knowledge of the fact that uh, being a clinician isn't the be all end all and that they should have these other interests either as a hobby or as a fallback or as just understanding they exist. So in that sense that I don't know if that's hopeful, I think it's hopeful. 
that will put pressure on the system to change over time to make it uh, competitive to want to keep people in it, keep physicians in the healthcare system. But so I see more of that because as I said earlier, you know, when we started doing this five or more years ago, I mean, this, there just wasn't this kind of chatter. There just wasn't this kind of interest and it's continuing to grow. So that'll be good. I think for those physicians who are intentional and proactive and understand that, um, you know, they're not going to be a physician for 45 years and retire and mm-hmm. call it good. Um, the, I don't necessarily see the bureaucracy responding quickly to be proactive, to help that happen in some way, but it's just, I think the physicians are going to force it. Um, in the meantime, I think it's going to get worse here in terms of for the patient care and looking and trying to find physicians and keep a physician and there's gonna be more turnover. And even like in my local hospital where I used to work, where I haven't been there now for eight years, uh, the turnover in physicians is just unreal. So um, that's not good for the patients, but I hear it from patients all the time. So I'll keep my fingers crossed and hopefully there'll be some improvements in the whole system. But I think that's what I see coming for at least the next five years or so. Well, thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts and vision about, you know, what could happen, what will happen. <laughs> you know, it's important yeah, to I mean, differentiate between the two. And I suspect, yeah, I think the problem will probably get worse before it gets better. I think if there are going to be any positive changes, it needs to be driven by doctors. Hence why you and I are doing what we're doing. That's right. right. You know, it's, it's about time that we as a collective actually took steps to, in some ways, take back control, in many ways, take mm-hmm. back control yeah. of our careers, autonomies, the care of our patient, the quality of patient care, and really drive that forward um, to the future because that's what we want. That's what, you know, our, the younger generation wants, that's what their children will need. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think especially, you know, diversifying as part of your career plan is essential to the survival of doctors as we know it. Um, Because as we know, with health technology in particular, you've got artificial intelligence. I did did an interview at a conference with, uh, oh God, what's his name? Uh, He wrote Noise, Daniel Kahneman. Hmm. Um, He wrote Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. I'm thinking fast and slow. And he also wrote a new book about noise. Anyway, so noise, noise is about the error of judgment um, in, in certain situations. Like, for example, doctors are very noisy. They'll ask one doctor what the diagnosis of a particular case is. They'll say one thing. You'll ask another doctor, they'll say another thing. You ask another doctor, they'll say that. That's noisy because you kind of expect that most will agree. But then in, in many circumstances, you'll get a differentiation. And so when I was interviewing him, I was asking, you know, we're talking about health tech and the advent of AI and decision making, clinical decision making. And his thoughts, <laughs> I think his instinctual thoughts when I asked him about this, he was like, well, in the future, I don't think doctors will likely have a job to go to <laughs> as, as things continue, basically. He kind of he kind of cycled back in that a bit, but I kind of understand that you can see where health technology is going. Like a lot of it is just automating and standardizing a lot of the processes in healthcare. And I think a lo- I think there's a lot of value to that because it gets things done. It's more efficient in many ways, but it also should make us think a bit more broadly about what our roles are going to be as doctors moving forward. Because it's not always going to be like this. That's reality of it. It's like, where where is our value in the system? 
what is it yeah. going to be like? Now, those are really interesting points. And I do see, yeah, that the physician's role changing and being at some nidus of pulling all this together and making sure the patients are benefiting from it. But uh, yeah, when you get out past five, 10 years now, things look really different, probably. 100%. Well, John, I think we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. I'm sure we could continue on. Oh, yeah. Really hot, hot debate. But I will I will end it there. But thank you so much for your time. And just finally, what exciting things do you have for doctors at the moment that we need to know about before we? Okay, start? exciting things. Number one, yeah. definitely listen to the podcast. You just look for physician, physician non-clinical careers podcast with John mm-hmm. Tarika. That's everywhere. If you want a list of seventy jobs, just sometimes people just need to look at something and say, "What can I <laughs> we do?" Have one of so, those. <laughs> yeah, so it's physician. Uh, it's actually nonclinicalphysicians.com forward slash seven zero jobs, and you'll just get like a two and a half page list of all the different jobs that are out there and a resource for each. I think those are dangerous, but that's another. <laughs> I know it's too much overload. And the other thing is, is I am involved. I think you alluded to at the beginning this thing called New Script. Mm-hmm. And it's like a Facebook group, but it's private and it involves non-physicians as well as physicians. So it includes a lot of different clinicians and you can find that at nonclinicalphysicians.com forward slash new script. It's all one word, new script. So those are some of the things that'll get you into my world if you want to. And uh, hopefully they'll be helpful. There's a lot of uh, new script has a tiny little membership fee, less than $5 a month, but otherwise everything I do is almost pretty much free. I think one of the best things about new script is seeing your face. The minute you open the app. <laughs> I'm on there a lot. Uh, videos and, and live streams. And stuff. So, yeah. You can see my face. If you go in there. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, John. And I'm sure we'll speak soon. Yep. My pleasure. Take care. So what I really enjoyed about this podcast, other than her really knocking heads with John is being able to remind myself of the vision that I have for doctors and for Medic Footprints in ensuring that we have autonomy in our careers, that we have control in what we want to do, and most importantly, we ensure that we are making a greater impact in our work, moving from serving, say, hundreds day to day to millions across the world because that is what is needed for doctors like us the world needs us there are loads of problems in this world that need to be solved and addressed so if that's you if you're looking for a new challenge make sure that you have subscribed to this podcast you've signed up to medic footprints mailing list which is medicfootprints.org forward slash join our mission and if you want to have a one-to-one with me just join as a premium member and I can help you and support you on that journey that you need to make so hoping to speak with you soon and looking forward to the next podcast episode